Well, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter number four, if you would. We continue our verse-by-verse study through this book. Ecclesiastes chapter number four. Is everybody ready? Okay. We're going to be looking at verses four through 16 tonight, and we'll just kind of unpack them along the way. So while you're turning there, let me just start by saying, people who refuse to live within God's order cause a lot of pain and distress to others. People who don't live within God's order, live within his bounds, cause a lot of distress and pain to others. One of the greatest social ills in America, the cause of a, of, of a lot of social ills in America is directly linked to fatherless homes. Dads who are not involved in their children's lives. One of the uh, signs of revival in the Old Testament was that the father's hearts would be drawn back to the children. That's how you knew a, a dad's heart or a father's heart or a, a man that, that his heart was towards God is he automatically wanted to raise his children for God. He had a heart for his children. He loved his children. He wanted to spend time with his children. You could tell a guy is drifting away from the Lord when he doesn't care about his kids and especially his wife. You can tell when a guy is drifting from God, he treats the people closest to him with disrespect and neglect every time. But you know, it's interesting because over 90% of men who are in prison come from fatherless homes. And I would venture to maybe say that the other 10% come from dads who are abusive or neglectful. Most of the problems that our government is spending billions and billions of dollars to help fix are directly associated with the fact that dads aren't taking up the responsibility in the home. Would everybody agree with that? That is, the, that is the solution to our country's problem, is that dads would take the responsibility to raise their kids for God. I'll tell you, if every dad in America loved God and loved their kids, I'll tell you what, we wouldn't have to spend a dime on social programs. I understand some fathers uh, pass away unexpectedly and things like that, and it's responsibility of the church and the people to help that single mother to help the fatherless in their affliction. That's one of the signs of a religion. If anybody seemed to be religious, James says, let them visit the fatherless and the widow in their what? Affliction. In other words, if, if you see a boy or a young girl without a father, that there should be a male figure that steps in and, and plays the role of a dad in that person's life. It's so, so important, isn't it? But when somebody lives outside of God's order and God's design, it causes a lot of chaos for the people around them. How many of you guys have somebody you're related to who's living outside of God's boundary and it's causing your family a lot of heartache? Would you guys agree with that or not? Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've lived outside of the bounds of God's word and, it's, and you thought it was great because it's your life. Uh, but it caused a lot of pain upon your family. Now, I'm, what I'm not talking about is your family living within your family's preferences. I'm talking about living outside of God's boundaries. I'm talking about living in sin, okay? I'm not talking about living, you know, living a life that your mother or your father prefers that's not sin. I'm talking about living in sin affects all the relationships in your life. Okay, it causes chaos and pain to people. There are people sitting in this room who have children who are living a life outside of God's boundary and it causes them deep pain every night. They, they can't stop thinking about that child and Lord, get a hold of that child's heart or God, get a hold of that person's heart that I'm, I'm related to. Uh, and everybody in here knows somebody like that and it hurts, Right? Okay, that's why God loves order. I like order. How about you? Listen, if you live outside of God's boundary, you refuse to live within God's order, you also diminish your own personality. You're not just hurting other people that you love, that love you, but you're also diminishing the best version of you. You're diminishing your entire personality. You're not even becoming you. It's funny how somebody says, well, I want to be my own person. Nobody's ever their own person. You just become, 
you become who you hang out with. You're a product of your environment. Okay, you're never your own. You're not just your own person. You have your own, uh, you know, style, and and all, you you become a version of another person if you don't have a close relationship with God. The only way you're going to become the best version of you is to be close to Jesus Christ. It frees you from the opinion of others, so you don't have to conform to their image of what a person is. Um, You conform to the image of Christ, which then in turn causes you to become the best version of yourself. So, So when you don't live within God's order, you diminish even your own personality and how God made you and you're so unique and and awesome and amazing and 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 nobody else in the world is like you and we want to see that but the only way to see that is to live within God's order to live outside that order only diminishes that personality living apart from God causes us to depart from being the best version of ourselves so when we read these these verses all of what I'm saying I hope makes sense to you but let me say this Everybody here was created for relationships. You were created for relationships. We talk about the Trinity all the time. And a lot of the times the questions about the Trinity revolve around how it works. And I think that's the wrong question. The question we should ask about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is why? Why is there three? The reason why there is three, okay, is because God is a God of relationships. And I know this is a hypothetical question we could ask ourselves, what was God doing before he created the universe? Like he's confined by time because he's not. He lives outside of time. But let's just hypothetically think that he lives in the confines of time. What was he doing for all eternity before He even created the heavens and the earth and all the universe. You know what he's doing? Enjoying relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we were made in that image. And in that image and in that order, we were designed to have a relationship with God and to have a healthy relationship with each other. To live within community. That's why Jesus says, I and my Father, we're one. And then he says, this is how the world's gonna know you're my disciples if we have love one for another. We're one together. We have unity. That's super important because life is so much more than the accumulation of stuff. It involves the oneness of relationships, the unity of relationships. Having people in our life is so vital and so important. We were made to function within relationships. And so, and by the way, when it comes to relationships, that's to be helped and to help others. In that relationship is to help and to be helped ourselves. The scriptures teach us how relationships should function. How relationships should function is is within love and respect and justice and kindness that show that that help us and and help relationships flourish. This is what the scriptures the scriptures are literally given to us so that our relationships with our parents and with our siblings and with our friends and our community and where we work begin to flourish. That's why we have this Bible. Because life is so much more than just getting stuff for yourself to impress people who don't care. It's about having flourishing, meaningful relationships in your life. First with God and secondly with people. So our culture values the accumulation of things. Would you guys agree with that? And that's why Jesus said life is more than just the accumulation of things. It's it's so much more than your possessions. It's more than meat and drink and sleep. God values the importance of relationships. What's the the greatest commandment in the Bible? There's the two greatest commandments in the Bible. A lawyer went up to Jesus and said, Jesus... We know the law. You tell us what's the greatest commandment because there's a big debate amongst the Pharisees for years. And you know what Jesus said to them? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love thy neighbor as thyself. And then if you were to break that down, those two commandments hang on the 10. The first four of the 10 commandments deal with your relationship with God. The last six of the 10 commandments deal with your relationship with man. 
He's, in, other, in other words, he says, this is the order in which you're supposed to live in to have a healthy relationship with God. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And this is how you have healthy, flourishing relationships with people. Don't covet. Boy, we could do a whole series on that one. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Why? This is how we have flourishing, healthy relationships. That, that is what, look right here. Ecclesiastes, this book is all about how do we have purpose and meaning in life? Like, how do I know what my purpose, how do I have meaning? Do you know why there's people who, I had, a, I had an older man come to me this morning. He said, Pastor, pray for, pray for uh, my granddaughter. She's 12 years old. She's at Pine Rest, wants to commit suicide. 12 years old. And I'm not going to, I don't know what's really going on in her mind or anything, but I will tell you this, that many people want to commit suicide. The reason, the number one reason why, not all the reasons, but the, one of the number one reasons why is because they feel like there's no purpose or meaning in life anymore. Do you know why they feel like that? Because they don't have flourishing relationships in their life. Do you know why the journey groups are so important? Because people, people the, the, being loved for who you are is a very strange thing for a lot of people. They never felt that before. I had a lady come to me uh, this week and we talked and she, with tears in her eyes, were telling me about how her father never told her she loved her. And she goes, I just have a hard time believing that God would love me the same way. It's the kind of world we live in. People are trying to discover the meaning of life and the purpose in stuff and things and success and accumulation and they realize it's all vanity, it's all empty. But having meaningful, thriving relationships, flourishing relationships, brings life meaning and purpose. Without it, without it, your life is empty. It's empty. For the most part, we all like order. So does God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14, 40 says this, let all things be done, what? Decently and, you know, he says, if you want to have flourishing relationships, you got to live within this order. It's funny to me how people are like, I just want somebody to like me for me. And if you're living outside of God's order, it's really hard for them to do that. Are you guys listening? If you are living outside of God's order and then expecting people still to uh, have a healthy relationship with you, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You cannot have a healthy relationship outside of God's order. If you're envious, angry, mad, sinful, let me tell you something. You're the type of person who's sucking the life out of others, not giving life to them. How many of you guys have found it hard to be close to somebody who is mean? How many of you guys have found it hard to be close to somebody who's not living within God's order? It's really difficult because, because they're not in it for the relationship. They're in the relationship simply to get something out of you. And once they got that out of you, you'll never hear back from them again. It's amazing how selfish and self-centered people really are. But we have to live within this order. So order helps us make sense of things. It kind of puts things in perspective. You know what? My relationship with my wife is more important than my job. If you have this in order, God, family, how you make a living, okay? God, family, your work, you have to provide for your family. But if you have your work above your family, you'll work extra hours and neglect your family. It's amazing to me how many people are like, Pastor, I got this job offer, but it requires me to be 50% of the time away from my family, but we're going to make a ton of money. I said, don't do it. I said, those kinds of jobs are great for single people, but not for married people. You're not working a job to be away from your family. You're working a job to be with them. I don't care if you're making forty dollars or $50,000 more a year. There's a reason they pay that much because you can't be with your family. It's Do you realize how hard it is for a couple to stay together if they only talk to each other two hours a week? How many couples work different shift, the, the shifts? The guy works night shift, she works day shift. They kind of say hi and bye to each other and they never see each other. Look right here. I don't know why this is, but it's very, very hard for that relationship to flourish and to grow and to be healthy. Maybe try to live on one income. 
Um, do you know the average dating couple talks to each other 15 hours a week? 15, like 15 hours talking to each other. Like my wife and I were out on a little date. We we're at Panera Bread, just having a good old time with each other. And you could tell there was a couple like three tables down. It was their first date. I mean, because they're just there, you could tell, and we're over, we've been married 15 years, you know, but we still got it. We still got it. I was like, honey, is, uh, I flirt with her and stuff, and we have a great time. Uh, but we, we kind of overheard their conversation. We're having fun with that. And remember, remember when we first met, we were just the same way. And, uh, uh, but we couldn't be alone because we're at a Bible college, you know, we had to date in public. Uh, but, you know, uh, but we had, you know, we, we just had a good time with each other. The average, average dating couple talks 15 hours a week. The average married couple talks eight hours a week. It's about, about an hour a day is the average that a married couple actually engages in meaningful conversation. But if you, listen, that, that's a big difference between eight and 15. Would you guys agree? That could take a drastic hit on your relationship. But imagine only talking two hours a week. It's unsustainable. Okay. Look, the most important relationship that you have if you're married is your spouse, okay? And making sure that is flourishing and that is growing and you're, you're making time to go on. This is why I took Shonda to Texas. We spent five days together and we had this planned a year in advance. We didn't just throw it together at the last minute, saved up for it. I had used my Southwest points and we used my in-laws uh, timeshare. So the trip was pretty much free for me and uh, it, it was fantastic. We had a great time. We had a, and we connected on it. We just need that time. It's so, it was so busy. Uh, I even had school that week. I had a, a papers and projects due that week. I just got up at uh, five in the morning and, 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 and worked on those projects before my wife got up and didn't affect our day and just made sure that didn't bleed into our time together. You just have to make it work. Spend time with each other. Have a balance, you know, have order. It makes sense of things. It makes sense in your family. Your church, your work, uh, order makes sense in creation, right? It doesn't make sense in evo the evolution model doesn't give us sense about the order, but God does. And, and order makes sense out of life, out of life. How many of you guys are thankful there's order? Like we know when the sun's gonna come up, when it's gonna go down. How many of you guys know that winter will end one day, okay? That summer's coming as well that the tulips and the daffodils are coming up from the ground pretty soon. Uh, we already have some coming up right now. We do. We have the daisies are coming up right now. I mean, daffodils, not the daisies, daffodils. And it's great. How many of you guys are thankful? Winter's almost gone. The sun will still be out when you get out of church. Yeah. All right. Hey, I like new seasons. When we lived in Arizona, when I lived in Arizona, we had two seasons, hot and hotter. That was it. That's all we got. But... Um, when it comes to living the balanced life, okay, let me just share some thoughts from you from this passage. We're going to look at verses five through six right now. First of all, I want you to see the difference between achievement and, and, and the dropout. The difference between achievement and dropout, look at verses five and six of chapter four of Ecclesiastes. It says, the fool foldeth his hands together and eats his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than, than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. So here we see the difference. The, people get out of balance. With the, they either work too much or they don't work at all. God's like, just <laughs> Ecclesiastes is teaching, have a balance. Have a balance between achievement and dropping out and being a lazy bum. Okay? Now, by the way, if you have retirement, you're able to retire, enjoy your retirement. Can I get an amen to that? But I can promise you, you're going to be building birdhouses before you know it. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're going to be bored out of your mind. You're going to find something to do because that's how God created us. He wants us to work. You're going to find something. You're going to, you can only watch so much Fox News. You can only watch so much HGTV before you're like, I, I got to do something. All of us are like that. But notice that people who refuse to work ruin their life. Look what it says. The fool foldeth his hands together. In other words, he's not going to work. He's like, I'm, I've just refused to work. Eats his own flesh. In other words, he destroys himself is the, is the metaphor there. The, the, the person who doesn't work destroys himself. You can't wait for somebody to bail you out or to give you a handout to fix your life. 
God says, that's up to you. Only you can fix your life. It's not a politician is not going to give you and fix your life. You're going to fix your life. The responsibility is yours. Can I get an amen to that? You can fix your life. God wants you to work, okay? Don't fall. That's what, that's what Proverbs teaches. He, he says the, the lazy, the fool, refuses to work and he makes excuses. He'll look at the street and say, there's a lion in the street, therefore I can't go to work. There's always an excuse, isn't there? I can't go to work, it snows. I can't go to work because I'm tired. I can't. Look, the world is run by tired people. And there's a lot of excuses for why we just can't go to work. Um, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of dignity that comes to a person who's able to work and provide for his family for a living. This really is. And by the way, when it, came, when it comes to work and working, that work was not a part of the curse. Did you guys know that? God gave Adam a job and a responsibility before the curse. Work is a blessing. There's a lot of fulfillment and dignity that comes to a person who's able to accomplish a task, especially together with a team. With a team. God wants you to accomplish tasks together with a team. And by the way, if you run a company or you run a team at work, man, it is, it is very enjoyable to accomplish a goal together as a team. And by the way, if you do accomplish something and you're a leader, I encourage you to celebrate as a team together. Just as when, when you guys win, win together and celebrate, even if that means just bringing in cupcakes and guys, we did it, we met our goal, let's celebrate for five minutes. All right, get back to work. But celebrate together, amen? Look at, the, look at all of the donations. I'm gonna have to rent a U-Haul truck to uh, bring all of these, these uh, gifts to Family Promise. I mean, look at that. I, I, I can't fit all that in my car. Uh, you guys are amazing. We did that together. How awesome. I mean, could you imagine if, and, and you know how many people are like, oh, we'll just have church at home and all that. Do you think, do you think one family's gonna accomplish that alone? Look what we did together. Look what we did together. How awesome is that? Okay, God wants us to live that way. So achievement versus dropout. People who refuse to work ruin themselves. How many of you guys have met these types of people? Can I just say this too? I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on in my mind, you know. If you're a young, a young man or young lady and you're kind of getting into the workforce, can I just encourage you with this? Just start working somewhere. $14 an hour, $12 an hour is better than $0 an hour. And while you're working that 40 hours a week at a place that you hate, okay, you can look for another job while you're working there. But I will tell you this, they're not going to make you the CEO at 25. You're not going to be the manager, although you think you can do better than your manager right now. They're not going to make you the manager overnight. You have to show faithfulness and work ethic and character along the way for them to advance. Just because you have a college degree doesn't make you now the expert of everything at your job. That just got you in. It's amazing how many CEOs I talk to who say they, they go to these colleges like Florida State and Michigan, all these other places to recruit employees. And those employees think that they should be making $80,000 a year right off the bat and running a team. Like, I know Florida State, I know Florida State promised you you would be very successful, but not at the beginning, or wherever it is, Michigan, Michigan State. But just, just get your foot in the door, prove to them that you have work ethic and achieve, but also don't be a dropout. Um, so not only do these people who drop out ruin themselves, but they, ruin, they also ruin their families, their neighbors, their community. So we have to have balance. We're encouraged to have balance. To ignore the drive for achievement is self-destructive. The drive must also be harnessed to what is compatible with inner peace. So in other words, we still need to accomplish something though, right? Okay, so it doesn't, we shouldn't drop out because that's self-destructive, but we shouldn't be so eager to accomplish at the sacrifice of our inner peace. Look at verse number six says, Better is a handful with quietness. Do you see that? It's like, it's better, it's better that you work a job that doesn't stress you out so much that, that, that literally stretches you to the point where you can't even enjoy life at all. Better is a handful of quietness 
Notice what it says. Then both hands full. I got a lot of money now with what? Travail and vexation of spirit. Now, I've talked to a lot of men who had to quit their job because it, was, it just was hurting their relationships with people. They were so stressed out. It was too much of a burden. And, and they would rather take a pay cut and work somewhere else and actually enjoy their life a little bit more. How many of you guys know people like that? Okay, That's what he's saying. It's better to have a little handful, one handful, and a quietness, a peace, a tranquility in your life. You guys with me? Then working so hard, working 80 hours a week, stressing yourself out, you got both hands filled, but your heart is vexed. So there's a balance between achievement and dropping out. Number two, there's a balance between work and relationship. That sounds like the same thing, but it's not. Look at verse seven. Then I returned and I saw more emptiness under the sun. I saw more vanity under the sun. There is one alone. <laughs> this is so good. There, I saw somebody, he was alone. And there, was, there wasn't a second. There wasn't a wife, there wasn't a kid. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor. In other words, this single guy is just working and working. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. He's like, I'm not gonna get married. She's gonna pull me back from what I wanna accomplish. I don't have anybody in my life, so I'll just accumulate. <clears throat> Neither saith he, from whom do I labor uh, and bereave my soul of good? He says, this also, this is also vanity, yea, it is a sore, sore travail. Not just a travail, a sore travail. He has nobody to share his life with. That's a sad life. You have nobody to share your life with. The drive to achieve may turn into aloneness and overaccumulation. This drive to achieve can cause you to, to become lonely and to have an overaccumulation, a form of, the, of what is called the power complex, where one's success gives him a feeling of triumphant superiority. Or it's like, I've accomplished now, I'm, I'm the biggest, I'm the best, I'm the richest, and so therefore I have this superiority complex. I look down on all the little lemmings down there, but he doesn't realize how empty he is. It's like, nobody. Well, he's, he's good at impressing people and throwing a party and, and having them come out to his private golf course, and, and he's really enjoying all of the, all of the uh, things of life, but he's, he has nobody to enjoy them with, with people who actually like him. He says, that's, that's a life of sore travail. He's saying it's, it's better if you're, you weren't striving so much to become so wealthy and maybe pull that back a little bit and invest your money into meaningful relationships and you'll find that your life will be very fulfilling. By the way, I hope if you're single here today, you're single and you're like, are you saying I should be married? That's not what I'm saying. You don't, you don't have to get married. In fact, Paul said, I'd rather you all be single because we could do a lot more for Christ, for the cause of Christ, if you weren't married. Um, but what I'm saying is, at least have somebody to share your life with. Like this, this whole idea of working so hard to accumulate so much, really, as I said, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, is that, um, you know, oftentimes we buy things with money we don't have, with things we don't need to impress people who don't care. And the fact of the matter is, this guy, all he has is envious people around him and nobody who loves him. So there are two aspects to this person's behavior, okay, that I just read. He never stops working. Look what it says, yet there is no end of all his labor. Do you guys see that? He just never stops working. Any guy who comes to me and says, yeah, pastor, I haven't taken, I haven't taken one, year, uh, one week off of vacation in five years. Like, they, that's a notch in the belt, okay? Like, that's something to brag about. Let me just tell you something from the Bible. That, the, the, that guy's living a very empty life. That's nothing to brag about. This over-accumulation, this never-ending of work, okay? Not taking time to separate and refresh yourself a little bit and to invest in relationships, he says, is, is a sore vexation of your soul. It's sore travail. There's a lot of emptiness and anguish involved 
with that. He never stops working. And another aspect of this person's behavior is he never finds satisfaction. Well, how ironic is that? Here's a guy who never stops working, but also never is satisfied. <laughs> there's, there's never, it, it's never enough for that person. Okay? And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Okay? The, 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 the Bible says this, the flesh is never satisfied. Do you guys believe that? I want you to say this. The flesh is never satisfied. Say that with me. The flesh is never satisfied. Can you just remember that for the rest of your life? Your flesh, your being, is never satisfied. It'll never be like, that's it? That's all the money I need? This is all the vacation time I need? This is all the success I need? I don't need any more success? This is it. The flesh is never satisfied. When you have a pure identity in Jesus Christ, you can be. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I'm not saying if you feel led to succeed in some way, to accomplish a task, to become the governor of the state or become the president, go ahead and do those things. But I would say don't do that at the expense of your family and of your relationships. But it's so interesting that this person never stops working, but is at the same time never satisfied. What a sad, sad life. See, satisfaction is found in succeeding together in community, okay? So we have to work, right? We have to work, but we also need relationships. Do you guys see the balance? Work versus relationships. You can't spend all of your time in relationships because you need to provide for your family, but you can't spend all your time in work and and neglect your relationships because you'll never stop working. You'll never be satisfied. You have to have a balance of both. Is everybody with me? Don't get out of balance. Um, if you're a husband, you're, you're a dad, and you gotta, you got to go out of town for a, uh, for a thing or you got to work some extra hours, just communicate that to your family, to your wife, but always make it up with them. If you know you're going to get real busy at Christmas time or at another season of your industry, make sure you communicate with your wife and your kids. Hey, it's gonna, dad's going to be busy for a couple weeks. You're not going to see me much, but I promise you when it slows down, I already have this planned. I already have it planned out. Don't just say, we'll spend more time together because you'll always find more work. Say, well, what we'll do, this is what we're going to do. Dad's going to step away from his job. You can just tell your boss, look, I'm taking three days off. I don't care what, <laughs> I don't care if you let me go. Uh, I need to take these three, do- three days off with my family, or four days or five days or whatever it is. And you plan a time where you could spend, spend quality and quantity time with your family. Work, relationship. And by the way, don't work so much that you neglect your church family. Can I get an amen to that one too? You need your, we need this community. Don't work so much. It's amazing. This was very, very predominant in, in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, there'd be a ton of people who would get saved, get their life cleaned up. And, and, and of course, by doing that, by default, they would start advancing in their career. How funny is that? And in their advancement, they would start accepting jobs that required them to work on Sundays because the entertainment industry never ends. It's every day, all day, every weekend. And they would take jobs that, brought, that took them out of church. And we'd say, don't, well, don't take that job. And they well, it pays this much. We're like, listen, you really need your church family. And they would take it every single time they would regret it. At, at 100% of the time, never seen a guy go to work on Sundays and be like, you know, that was one of the best decisions I ever made. You can't replace the value of having a connection with your church family. Okay, that's really important. And, and your journey, that's why we're, my goal is to have a journey group go every single day of the week. So, that it, so I know some of you have to work all these weird hours and work nights. I want to give you at least one opportunity to connect with a group of people within the church. So have a balance between work and your relationships. Number three, two is better than one. Two is better than one. Look at verse nine. Well, that's what the Bible says. Two are better than one. Do you guys agree with that? Well, that's what the Bible says, right? Two is better than one because they have a good reward for their what? For their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. In other words, like if you fall and you are going through a hard time, you don't have anybody else to encourage you and lift you up, woe to that person feel sorry for that person. That's why it's important to have good, healthy relationships within your church family you could, where you're casting your care upon not just Jesus because he cares for you, but bearing one another's burdens so you fulfill the law of Christ. 
Verse 11, again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? By the way, that doesn't just involve a marriage relationship, but even in the military, they'll teach you this principle right here. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let's break down these verses really quick. So in verses 9 through 11, um, the hard work of relationships, in other words, is worth the time. Two's better than one. The hard work of building a relationship is worth the time. How many of you guys know that building a relationship takes effort, time, work, sweat, tears, and blood? Would you guys agree with that? But what the Bible teaches is it's, a, it's worth it. It's worth it. Okay? Building those relationships with people are worth it because two are better. It's worth investing in your marriage. It's worth it uh, because two are better than one. Human beings are designed to function in community rather than independence. Do you know America is one of the only cultures to ever live with this idea of independence? Not working interdependently with each other, but taking pride in being your own person and making decisions on your own. Did you know in the Bible, people didn't do that. They made decisions in community. When the jailer got saved, his whole family got saved with him. It was like, well, that was your decision. I'll think about it for my... No, they just made it all together. They made decisions together. They worked interdependently. They worked within community when they made decisions. So the benefits of relationships are many. Two are better than one. Some, they provide love. They provide meaning. Relationships is, is a way for us to show God we love them. God says, how can you say you love me, but you hate somebody that you see, but you say you love me who you don't see? In other words, he's saying in John chapter 4, if you, if you love me, you love my people. You love the people that I made because they're made in my image. Okay, One of the... One of the best ways to know that, a, that somebody's genuinely born again and saved is that they have love for people the same way God has a love for people. And so two is better than one. Where two are gathered together in his name, what? It's so, it's so funny. How many times have you ever heard a message, even from me, who said, have your personal devotions? Just get up in the morning, open your Bible, and read together. Read by yourself. Did you know that you don't find that in the Bible? People read in community. When they read, they read together. When they prayed, they prayed together. They didn't pray alone. They prayed together. I'm not saying they didn't have a private prayer life like Daniel and others, but most of the time, they, when they read the Bible, they got, they got together with a couple of people and they read the Bible together. What do you think? What are you thinking? Let's, let's encourage each other in this. And they, were, they held each other accountable. But, but we really emphasize this, this like, I, I just, you know, like my prayer life's private, my Bible reading's private, and I don't talk to anybody about it. I think we're doing ourselves a huge disservice by not reading the Bible together with each other. And that's why I really love the journey groups because you're studying the Word of God, studying these subjects together as a group. Discuss. I think it's so healthy uh, for you to grow in this way together with other people. Um, relationships are how we love God. So two are better than one. Look at verse 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, I know we use this in the context of marriage, and that's not what it's talking about, although that is true. It's true. Bless you. Uh, it, it is true that, you know, you as a husband, a wife, and God together, it's that threefold cord is not quickly broken. And, and I would use that in a marriage, and I have. Um, but what, what I am saying is working to achieve community seems to promise more lasting results than simply working alone to become rich. Okay, meeting needs together, leading others together, raising your kids together seems to promise more lasting and fulfilling results than simply working all by yourself on the project. So a threefold cord is not quickly, in other words, if you can work as a team together at work or at home, a lot more is accomplished and that cord is not quickly broken. Let me, let me ask you this. If your kid 
saw that mom and dad were one on a decision. Do you think that decision's gonna be broken anytime soon? No. No, not at all, especially if the mom and dad agree with God. So all three of you, that kid has no chance of getting their way, right? Imagine a team at work, all in unison, working together with the same goal, the same passion, working together. There is not gonna be too many forces out there in the world that can break that strong cord together, right? You look at the medical industry, they work together. Do you realize that? When a cancer patient goes, they, they don't work alone, like, oh, I'll figure it out myself so I can build my portfolio. You know what they do? They call a team of other doctors and they get their mind and their expertise on it and they work together. And guess what? The success rate is better because working together accomplishes more. It's more fulfilling. Working together as a church is more fulfilling. Okay, two is better than one. Um, now let me show you the last one, tradition versus transformation. Tradition versus transformation. Look at verse number 13. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in the kingdom becometh poor. <laughs> I consider all the living which walk under the sun. With the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They, they also that came after shall not rejoice in him. In other words, when he was the king, the people that come after him will forget that he was the king. They won't remember him anymore. His influence is gone. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Let's talk about this. The Bible is teaching, it teaches that it's better to be a young, wise, and poor than to be rich, old, and foolish. See, it's interesting because youth and poverty are not normally valued with wisdom. Youth and poverty are not really considered to be something that we would say, oh, that's a wise person. But old and rich are not normally associated with foolishness. But what the Bible teaches is that an old king who thinks he's something and can't be admonished, can't be taught, is considered a fool. This shows... This shows us how valuable character and wisdom is in our life. That even a younger, inexperienced person that comes from a poor background will, will do a much better job as a king than somebody who's rich, who's old, but, but lacks the ability to learn anymore. Who's not teachable. Who can't sit around a council and learn from other people. Okay? Um, so what is the wise, according to these verses? The, the wise person is open to instruction and correction. The wise person is open to instruction and correction. In other words, if you want to be a leader in your community or at your workplace, God says you're going to lose your influence if, you're, if, you, if you stop remaining teachable. He says, I'll replace that with somebody who's young, poor. He says, is, it, there's, there, he goes, there's a guy who comes out of prison and is teachable. He'll do a much better job than the, than the guy who was born into the kingship but is not teachable. He's going to lose everything. It's going to be foolish. It's interesting to me how this works. So the arrogance of the king made him ineffective. And that always happens, doesn't it? Once you become arrogant, once you think you know it all, once you think you're the man or you're the lady, you're, you just, you're the stuff, uh, God says, you, once you become that person, you lose all influence. You, become, you, be, you, you, you are diminished in the sight of all the people that follow you. But just being humble and teachable and not a know-it-all. Do you know, people would rather follow somebody who's real, not somebody who's always right. I think it'd be better to be real and right. <laughs> But nobody wants to be around a know-it-all. Who feels filled up when somebody's monologuing with you all the time? How many of you guys feel filled up when you dialogue with somebody who's learning from you, too? So I got something to learn from you. Do you know you can learn from anybody? I learn from my kids all the time. They point out my inconsistencies regularly. 
Dad, aren't you not supposed to be eating that? Mm! <laughs> you weren't supposed to say that. You know, they're always watching us. Just remain teachable. I, I, you know, it's funny because I'll do school. I was like, I, I got school too, kids. You know, they see me learning. And I never want to lose that. Never want to lose that. Um, so listen, just because you got, just because you are advancing in your career, you're learning some stuff, you got some experience under your belt, can I tell you something? Just stay humble, stay teachable, and love people. It's so, it's so amazing to me how, how people get this like superiority complex once they become something and, and they, they don't realize they're, they're so self-destructive and they ruin the relationships in their life. They ruin their ineffectiveness or their effectiveness in people's lives. And they don't realize that it's, it, was the, it, was, it was the people in their life that, that mattered most and investing in those relationships and being teachable. Um, how many of you guys know John Steinbeck? Not know him personally, but the writer. You guys know who he is? Raise your hand if you know who he is. Okay. Most of it, you had to read them in school, right? Um, he wrote a book called The Pearl. Anybody read The Pearl before? Nobody? Okay. One, oh, there we go. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, so one person has read The Pearl. In this American novel in 1947, he presents the story of Kino. And if I misrepresent the name, because whenever I read something, I say the names how I say it, okay? So I've never actually heard, you know, this novel read to me. Um, and his wife, Juana, and their baby, Coyotito. Thank you. Thank you. I almost called him Coyote Tito. Coyotito. Uh, Tito. They lived in dire poverty in the story. Um, I'm going to get, this is like a total, like I'm going to give you the end of the story, Okay. But they lived in dire poverty, but they loved each other very much, this whole family, this family of three. And he was a fisherman, and one night he found an oyster, a pearl of great price. Very, very, very extremely valuable. And he was overcome with happiness and joy about what he found and how he was going to change the, his relationship with his, his sweetheart and how he was going to provide for his family. He was just elated with joy, but it also lifted him up. And this pearl, the pearl, precipitates and in a curious black residue is what the book refers to it as. In other words, every man suddenly became related to Kino's pearl. Everybody wanted to be around Kino because of what he had, not because of who he was. And his home was invaded, his home was even burned. His marital happiness was threatened. And not until he lost his child does Kino realize what true success is. And he renounced his greed over the pearl and he takes the pearl and he throws it out into the sea to be seen no more. You can avoid all that. You can, you can chase after riches. You can try to become wealthy. You can try to accumulate as much as you possibly can at the expense of your family, but you'll realize how empty and foolish it truly is. All of us, all of us wonder how, what it would be like to win $10 million, wouldn't you? You know what's so funny? Is that when the lottery, what is it? What's the, what's the, what do you play? The Mega Millions? Is that right? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just playing. I was, I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, Mega Millions? Who plays the Mega Millions? All right, anyway, don't raise your hand. Um, do, you, do you remember when it got up to $1.5 billion? You guys remember that? One and a half billion? You guys don't remember that? I mean, it's all over the news, right? Okay, there we go. Does anybody watch the news? Okay, well, all right. Okay, well, it got up to like over a billion dollars, okay? And they said 478 million people played. 400, did I say 400, and, what did I say? 478 million people played. Do you know how many people voted in the last election? 420 million. Or no, wait, not 420 million. There's only 350 million people here. Uh, it was like, let me see, hold on, let me. It was like 150 million people played 
It was like 150 or 170 million people played the lottery that year. And like 20 million less voted than the last election. So you know what I think we should do? I think we should, voting should be like one person should win $1.5 billion and that would raise the amount of people that vote uh, during the election. What do you guys think? Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but isn't it crazy that more people played the lottery than actually voted in the last election? Uh, but we all think about what it would be like to win you know, $10 million, right? We talk about how, how we, you know what we think about, right? We think about how we're gonna spend it. You know, how is it going to change our lives? It's going to take all my problems away. I'm going to have, we're going to buy this, we're going to buy that. But what people don't ever think about is how it'll negatively affect your life. There's no way $10 million would negatively affect my life. Oh, yeah, it will. I know people who got a $50,000 inheritance and it. People, how people treated that person just with $50,000 uh, totally ruined their relationships. People don't take that into account, how it affects their relationships because people are so greedy that when you buy a house, now the, the, the things that you don't even think about when you accumulate so much stuff that you don't even think about sitting right here when you don't have $10 million, you don't think about it when you do have it and you buy that house, you have to realize, okay, I gotta, I gotta set up protection from people who are gonna rob this place. I gotta, I gotta hire landscapers to keep all of this up. Um, I gotta, I, there, there are so many things that you have to take into account uh, when it comes to these things, you say, well, I'd like to give it a try, Pastor, because it, it would be awesome. Uh, but what people don't realize is how many lives have been ruined uh, by simply winning the lottery. I don't know if you guys have ever studied this, this thing before, uh, but has ruined a lot of lives because it affected all the relationships in their life. They realized that the people in their life didn't really like them for them. They liked them for their money and and what it did to them and the burden that they had to carry now to keep up that lifestyle or to keep up that sort of thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't become a millionaire. I'm not saying that. But you guys got to realize it's not as glamorous as society makes it out to be. Do you know who's rich? The person who has Jesus Christ. The person who has one handful and, and, a, and a tranquility and a quietness of spirit says, you know, my life's good. I don't need anything else. I don't need to win the lottery to be happy. Okay, he that hasteneth to be rich has an evil eye. You try to get rich quick, you have an evil eye. You think you really think that money is going to really solve all my problems, but it doesn't. What this teaches us here is to have a balance, to live within God's boundary and within His order is going to create great peace within your heart. And I hope uh, I hope something tonight said.